All right, Matthew chapter 5, eternal and impactful influence. Big question you have to answer is, in a world that is desperately in need of impact and influence, you can feel the current of the culture, the direction that we are undeniably heading, the pace is really unbelievable. You can feel impotent, and that's one option. I'm just going to be impotent. I'm going to be passive. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to pray. I'm going to bunker, or I'm going to engage, which is impactful. So you want to be impactful. You want to be impotent. Do you want to see the difference in your community, in your neighborhood? Do you want to be a significant player in the life of your family and friends? You can be because of who you are and what you are. So my challenge, and I'm just staying in the same zone I've been in meditationally, because I want to challenge you to be something because you are something. Because the world desperately needs what we are if you're a Christian. So that's kind of the the direction we're headed today. We're going to remind you out of the Gospel of Matthew who you are. Um, so you can target what you need to be because of who you are. All right, I'm going to lead us in prayer. This will be our third elder prayer this morning. So you're getting your money's worth in the praying zone. Um, But Claudia's daughter, Claudia's right up here. Claudia's daughter, Darlene, is in the birthing process. Darlene is having her first little one, and she's having a hard time. And uh, so there's some challenges and complications with that. I just prayed with her, and I'd like us to pray for her. If you're a mother or father, you, you get how impactful that is and how challenging it can be to navigate that, that situation. Father, we thank you today for your grace and your presence in our life. You're intimately acquainted with all of our ways. You're actively aware of the challenges that Darlene and her little one are facing. And we ask in the name of our Savior for your will to be done and your work to be displayed for your glory and their blessing and benefit. Please preserve life. Please promote wisdom among those who serve and care for them. Lord, may decisions be made at the right time. And we just pray that delivery would turn out with a healthy baby and a healthy mother. And Lord, we pray for the peace that surpasses all comprehension, the felt presence of a real God who is intimately acquainted and promises to be present in all of our circumstances. We are grateful for your grace. We pray for Claudia as a grandmother that you would grant her peace and strength in her heart today. So, Lord, we're a family. This is not just a big church with lots of people in it. We are connected by grace. We are fellow heirs, and we are connected as family members, and we walk with each other both in times of joy and in times of challenge and difficulty. So, Lord, we want to collectively ask you to show yourself strong for Darlene and her baby. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, All right, Matthew chapter 5, and if you were here last week, this is just a high-speed review. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, the greatest preacher, the greatest sermon, Jesus Christ, kingdom realities, nine ways you can be blessed, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, verses 1 through 12, and then beginning with verse 13, this is how you can be a blessing. You are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt has become tasteless, how, it will, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore. It's no good to be a blessing and fulfill its function except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot by men. You are to be, because, look up, you're, you're, you are to be the salt of the earth because as a kingdom citizen, you're living in a broken world and you're to be an agent of help to the hurting. You're to be a difference maker. We talked at length about salt. Salt is a powerful preservative. Salt is seasoning. It promotes pleasure. People in your life ought to have a better life because you're in it. And you're a provoker of thirst. Too much salt on that food, you're looking for hydration the rest of the day. You're preserving powerfully. Salt was a preservative. And that's what we're aiming at today, reflecting on the core criteria to maximize your influence being because, here's the proposition, you are something, therefore you need to be something, and the guarantee is that your life will mean something. You will be a blessing. Because the world is broken, because people are hurting as the salt of the earth, you need to be influencing and impacting. You need to be powerfully potent, and you need to be practically present. So I want to talk about key criteria, and I gave you two last week out of Luke 14. I'm going to add to them today. Things you need to be focused on to be who you are. Because as a kingdom citizen, you need to have certain things by way of convictions beating in your heart. So the key criteria and essential ingredients for kingdom impact and cultural influence begins with this, the most obvious one. You need to have a confident and compelling conviction. You need to be convinced that as a kingdom citizen, you are meant to be a preserver and a promoter of righteousness. You're the salt of the earth. You don't become the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth if you're a kingdom citizen. You are therefore culturally valuable and you are meant to be impactful. As a kingdom citizen, born again by grace through faith, you are identified by the king of everything, Jesus Christ, seated in authority, talking to the disciples. You are defined by him and identified by him as a helper to the hurting and a benefiter to the broken world. You're the salt of the earth that has meaning and impact. This conviction involves two big ideas. Number one, the issue of potency. You need to be tasty. Tasty, not tasteless. If the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing. It's not a blessing. It's only good to be tossed out and trampled on. Potency involves tasty, not tasteless. And to be good for kingdom purposes, you need to be salty. Otherwise, you're good for nothing. To a broken and hurting world, you enjoy no respect. You're thrown out, treated as valueless, good for nothing, no respect, no lasting kingdom impact. You preserve the nothing, you provide no pleasure, and you provoke no thirst. 
potency matters as it relates to who you are. And number two, where we focused significantly last time, proximity. The other key criteria for impact and influence, proximity. Turn over to Luke chapter 14, and just again, this is just connecting you to these key ideas, and we're going to enjoy a personal testimony today from one of you to the rest of us to encourage us, but the second big idea involves proximity, and that's what we chatted about last week. Verse 34, Luke 14, therefore, salt is good, but if it but even but if even salt has become tasteless this is Luke 14:34 Jesus talking salt is good has value it produces benefit but even salt if it has become tasteless how can it be seasoned again verse 35 it is useless and here's where we get the idea of proximity it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile salt in the soil promotes growth Salt on the manure pile inhibits corruption. It's no good unless it's in the soil and on the manure pile. Salt in a shaker has no impact or influence. So the idea is, by way of impact and influence, potency, how salty are you as a Christian, to proximity, you need to be, listen to me, on it and in it. If you're going to be influential, you need to be on the corruption place, engaged with it, and in it, the soil. The idea is, in terms of proximity, you need to pursue, by way of conviction, proactive engagement with those in your world. And if it's a manure pile of spiritual corruption, you need to get on it. And if there's potential growth, you need to get in it. Because salt doesn't do what salt is, and you don't do what you are unless you're engaged. Not bunkered, not disconnected. Salt is good. It is valuable to the world and Christ's kingdom if it's involved with that world. Question, where are you involved with the world? I'm not talking about of it. I'm talking about you're, you're, you're engaged. You're not worldly. You're salt in a world that needs influence. Where are you involved with the world? Where are you engaged constructively? And where are you connected practically? Listen, remember, salt was a penetrating presence. Things were preserved when they were soaked in salt. So I'm not talking just about a fly-by shake out of the shaker of Christian influence. I'm talking about proactive engagement. I'm not talking about unwise engagement. I'm not talking about putting yourself in harm's way. I'm talking about spiritually, intentionally pursuing people for their promotion of righteousness, growth, and for the deterrence of corruption and unrighteousness. Why? Because you're engaged. Because you're a part of their world, promoting and preserving. And that's the result, please hear this, of salt saturation. 
I offered you a two-fold strategy as it relates to proximity. Applicational strategy, two big ideas. Win them or ruin them. Win them has to do with inviting them, pursuing them, engaging them, and rescuing them. I want you to look at the context of Luke 14. And again, these are highlights because where I want to go is reemphasize what you need to be focused on. Remember, this is discipleship in a big group. This is not hearing new truths and being amazed by it. It's being changed by it. My life is reflected, or my life is reflecting what I'm hearing. Not just what I'm learning. I am changing. And the idea of winning them comes out of the context of Jesus' statement that salt is good. And what precedes it had to do, we talked about it last week, the word therefore at the beginning of verse 34 points you back to what he's been talking about. 25 through 33 involves potent discipleship. Christ over everything. But I want you to see what precedes that. Because being a disciple is doing what Jesus would do if he were you. And he's reflecting on the priorities of the kingdom of God. He's saying, this is what matters to the kingdom of God, to me as the king, to God as the father. He taught them a parable in verses 16 through 24, Luke 14. The parable had to do with a man who was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave and we are synonymous with slaves in the kingdom, to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. So this master dispatches a slave, the purpose of which is to get the house of the master full. He wants to entertain. He wants to bless. He's having a dinner gathering, and everything is ready for this Gathering, and by way of the parable, he dispatches a slave. And the parable, the slave goes out, and what he gets is one excuse after another. Oh, I've got things to do. I've got a, a field. I've got uh, family to visit. I've got to marry a wife. I've got five new oxen. I need to test drive them. I bought a piece of land. I need to check it out. Life's happened. I'm distracted. I've got things to do. And the invitation is rejected because I'm distracted and too busy with other things. So the slave comes back and said, hey, the house isn't going to be full. Verse 21 And the slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, You go out into the highways, along the hedges, and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. Now listen, that's a parable, a story, meant to give you kingdom insight about the heart of God and the purposes of God. God wants his house full. He wants his kingdom populated with redeemed people who respond to the good news of the gospel and the free offering that he gives to come and dine. 
and he has entrusted to stewards of the kingdom, disciples, by way of this story, with the job and responsibility to do what? Pursue and invite. Do what it takes. Go into the highways. Go into the hedges. Persuade them. Invite them. Compel them. Move them. My heart, my passion as the king of everything is that my house is full. And then he talks about discipleship. Hey, you can't follow me if family and friends mean more to you than I mean to you. You can't follow me as a disciple and be like I would be if I were you if you are married to your own passions and priorities as opposed to mine. I just told you what a priority is for me. Kingdom invitation, kingdom pursuit. Engaged with people who are on the outside, people who are damaged and broken and hurting, and there's help to be offered, a dinner to be enjoyed, fellowship to be experienced, and I'm sending you out. Potent Christians are not married to their possessions. They're not married to their passions. They're not married to the people in their life, first and foremost. They're married to the Son of God, first and foremost. That's potent. Proximity matters. Notice what it says in chapter 15, verse 1. Now remember, there's no chapter breaks as you read this gospel. It's here for our benefit to help us find our way around, sometimes to offer us a break. But watch the connection of this context. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, put this in context. Salt is good if it has potency. If it's Christ over people, passions, possessions. It has power. But it needs to be connected in proximity to the people who need to be engaged. And what happens next is you see Jesus modeling impact and influence because he's doing what? He's engaging relationally with the people he's seeking to influence. I mean, he gets accused of eating with the wrong kind of people, receiving them, welcoming them, engaging with them, eating with them. Win them has the idea of doing what Jesus would do if he were you. His priority is invite them and pursue them. Luke 15, engage them, eat with them, develop connection and relationship with them. Does anybody know what the rest of Matthew 15 is about? Rescuing them. The only place in the Bible where Jesus tells three parables in a row. It's like a triple header to... to, uh, entrench and imprint on your mind the priority of the heart of God. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, great joy at the return and rescue in the heart of heaven's king as it relates to the pursuit of the lost, the broken, the hurting with the good news of the gospel. So winning them has the idea of 
inviting and pursuing them, engaging them, and rescuing them with gospel witness, gospel influence, both words and your work. You salt them with the truth, and you salt them with a life that's credible as it relates and displays the truth. Listen, faithful discipleship is to do what Jesus would do if he were you. Discipleship is about denying yourself normative people priorities to pursue the greater priorities of God. And he said very plainly, unless you're ready to do that, you can't be my disciple. And potent impact players are Christocentric, Christ-first, Christ-over-all-things followers of Christ. Now listen, we all know that doesn't mean my wife doesn't matter to me. Part of loving him is loving her. But not loving her over loving him. It's not that Christ wants me to pursue some kind of masochistic mindset. He's giving me all things freely to enjoy. God is not a cosmic killjoy, but it's Christ over Harry's passions and personal priorities. And everything I have has to be a lesser passion and pursuit than the priority of fulfilling the purposes of the king who created me and saved me. And it begins with the recognition, I've got to be potent and I've got to be present. I've got to be intentional and I have to be proactive. I'm the salt of the earth. Everywhere Harry Walls goes, I have influence. Do you get that? So do you. The question is, will you put yourself in a position to impact and will you be the kind of person that has savor, high concentrate, potent, not because you carry a billboard that says Jesus saves. And I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm saying that's not what is being promoted. It's a life passion and a life priority. And it changes everything. Because listen to me. We just had our high school retreat. Teach us to number your days. We had a thousand young people in Glorieta, New Mexico. 400 from our church traveled out that massive bus ride. 600 met them from other places and states. And the emphasis is, you're going to die. Get up in the morning if you're 15 years old. Is that the first thought you have? I'm going to die. No, we... The younger you are, the less you have that thought. Now, this generation is saying, I might want to die. More young people today than ever say, I'm not sure I want to live. But they're not thinking they're going to die unless they choose to die. Life is a vapor. It appears for a little time. It vanishes away. The theme of the the high school retreat was, you need to recognize you're going to die. And you do not know when. And you need to prepare for that. And guess what you do? You traffic with people who are going to die, and they die sooner than they think they will, in ways they never thought they would. Prepared or unprepared, they're going to die. And you know what? You're going to die. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. You're going to die. Don't let that bury you. Let that calibrate you. 
And that's what the retreat was about. Well, guess what? There are people in your life who matter to you, who in, by God's providence have placed you in their life space, and you're meant to impact them. And that is not going to happen if you stay passive and disconnected. I, uh, I have the privilege, as many of you know, as working at the Masters University, I have the privilege of shepherding young people as the campus pastor and got great teammates. And we're in the midst of trying to figure out how to sleep 30-some too many. You know, uh, tiny houses, tents down at Santa Monica. We don't really know. That was a joke. Um, we don't want to be the homeless campus, but we've got problems to solve. And one of my key teammates is a part of our fellowship here at Grace Church is Mike Nesheim. And Mike is an adjunct business prof, but he's got this passion to help us get things done so that we can accommodate students and uh, not just to house them, but social gathering spaces because we believe in life-on-life discipleship and spiritual conversations, and Mike is a big part of our team to help promote that. And he had the privilege of doing something this week that I invited him to just share with you and in the kind of the traffic pattern of his life, which is what disciples do in the traffic pattern of their life while you are going, Matthew 28, you're to make disciples. You're to invite people proactively to do what you did. Repent, trust Christ, and follow Christ. And then teach them to do what Christ would do by virtue of what he taught and said. So, Michael, I didn't see where you landed. Yeah, come and just share a brief word of encouragement. This is meant to say, and let me put it this way, if Mike can do it, you can do it. (laughs) Yeah. Morning. Um, So, yeah, we have, we probably have, uh, this last week, we had four different uh, contracting companies on our campus. So uh, our our big goal last week was to get through Friday without a fist fight uh, on lower campus with uh, the contractors. There's a lot of unsaved people on our campus, and deadlines are really really intense. Um, so over the over the course of the summer, uh, I'm probably on the campus about 80 hours a week uh, because of when the contractors get there and when they leave, and and just making sure everything kind of goes the way we want it. But we have an opportunity to engage in a lot of these unsaved folks. And um, a story started about two weeks ago with a tile guy uh, who's been just working his tail off uh, on a lot of failed attempts in one of the bigger dorms that's old. And when you uncover anything at Masters, uh, you find things that it's like it was built on uh, like an archaeology find, right? So (laughs) there's layers upon layers upon layers of things in the past that we uncover and they have to fix. And so their job is frustrating at best. Um, but one day at lunchtime, uh, the head of plan ops and I were walking through uh, the dorm and uh, checking up on this, this guy named Alejandro. His name, he goes by Alex. And, uh, and Ralph mentioned to me that, that uh, Alex seemed below low uh, during his lunch break. And so we pull over and just kind of you know, spent about 40 minutes with him, uh, chatting with him. And he had, in his circle, lost about nine people uh, to COVID. And, um, and there was a funeral going on right at the time we were talking to him that he couldn't go to because he was on his deadline with us. And so he was just uh, pretty broken. And uh, so Ralph turned the conversation to the gospel, and we ended up having a great conversation uh, to the extent uh, of the gospel 
all the way through, and he was very open and receptive to that. And so the next day, coming back through, um, I, I altered my course to make sure that I ran into him purposefully um, uh, in a way that, that would let him talk. And so I passed him and said hi and asked him how he was doing. He said good, and his countenance was completely different. And uh, as he passed and he walked off, uh, sometimes you have to be really strategic in the way you ask things because it's awkward for them that you're going to engage their personal space, especially their soul space. Um, I asked him if he accepted Christ, uh, just blunt. And, and sometimes in, you, have, you have to get to know people well enough to know that, that blunt works. So uh, there's a phrase in the Bible, obviously, that says, faithful are the bruises of a friend. And that's always stuck with me in the business world. You have to be somebody's friend before you can tell them that thing that's going to hurt, you know. And so uh, I asked him, and, and he received that from me, and he said, I have. And so we had a, a good conversation. He had opened his Bible that they had gotten when they got married, him and his wife, uh, the night before, for the first time since they got married years, years before. And, uh, and so he started talking to her about that. So the next day, this leads to another story, the, the next day um, I was sharing that with a, uh, just a salty uh, asphalt contractor salty in, a different in a different way, in a different way, yeah, yeah. a very, uh, very hardened, uh, yeah, could be in any setting, uh, an older guy and had had a very hard, hard life. Um, and, and I was, so I, I do a lot of third-person evangelism uh, when I talk to people. So I will tell somebody I know that's not a Christian about how somebody else became a Christian. And I'll, and I'll let my joy about that come through. And then um, as I told this other guy, John, about that, his, his comment caught me so off guard. I don't know why it catches me off guard when the Lord works, but uh, it did. And he said, he said, I need some of that. And he walked off. And I was like, okay, I was not expecting him to say that. So over the cor- I, told, I told some of the other crew on our campus to be watching out for this, this guy and opportunities for him for the gospel. We all started praying about it. And then about two days later, uh, he showed up over and over and over. And I thought the best person to share the gospel with him was somebody else, was the head of uh, plant operations, because their paths are very simple, uh, similar uh, but that's not what God had intended. He had it for me. So uh, he kept landing right next to me. It was, and it, that's, that's odd when everything's in a crunch. Um, and I was able to. So I said, so he looks up. I introduced him to our CFO. He looks up at our CFO and he says, where do I get one of those hats with a Bible on it? Which is super weird for this guy to say, just for what it's worth, okay, in the setting. Paper. Yeah, he's just, you wouldn't think he would ask for a hat with a Bible on it. Um, so Todd says we can handle that. And so I walked him up to the, ca- to the cafeteria where our bookstore is. And what I've done every Friday is meet with a group. I'm sorry, this is long. What I've met, uh, every Friday I do a little club on the campus. And I teach a little group of kids that in the time you walk from any part of our campus to another part of our campus, that you can accomplish a ton in that 12-minute walk. That's what it is. So we've done this for two years. So, of course, it hits me how convicting. I got a 12-minute walk with this guy. I know exactly what I need to get done. So I started asking him. I said, so where are you at, John? And his answer was, what do you mean, religiously? Like, I mean, that's, that's odd. Again, so I said, yeah. So we went through 
a number of questions with him. He was very transparent. Uh, we got up to the bookstore, and um, a couple of the guys on campus, they saw me come in. I said, I, while he was looking at hats, I said, I need this book, this book, this book. Uh, and they're running around the bookstore trying to find the resources that fit his life because I've invested in this guy, and I know where he's coming out of, so I can hand you know, literature to him that's going to fit what he's doing. And that's just, you've got to pay attention to the people you're evangelizing. Um, and then as we walked out of that bookstore, I said, I said, John, let's just sit down and pray about this. Because you could tell it was, he didn't want to leave uh, until this was settled. And so we just sat down, and I was a- able to share the gospel with him. And I said, do you want to become a Christian? Would you like to accept Christ as your Lord? And he says, I absolutely do. So we, we prayed. Uh, I prayed, then he prayed. And, um, and then I got up from there, and I walked right into where Harry was, because uh, he lives in our valley and so I'm trying to, as fast as I can, connect him to a church. That's, that's, what I'm, that's, that's step two for me, um, and so he doesn't feel abandoned. So I walked right in and had him meet Harry, invited him to chapel on Wednesdays on the camp, campus. And Harry just went hairy and wrapped his arms around this guy. Um, but as we walked out of there, I told him, I said, just so you know, I said, in this moment, you're more of a brother in Christ than my own father. And I said, my dad's not saved, and, and it's important for him to know like, that if you've never understood what family is, and when a lot of these people that are unsaved don't know what true family is, um, having an actual brother that's true, like deep, soul-searching true, uh, is new. And, and that, for me, from my past, that was huge. And so I handed that to him as kind of a parting gift. So anyway, you could pray for him. So he's trying to figure out how in the world he's going to do this with... Uh, a lifetime of people in his life that are not believers. He's got no one. So, so he's trying to figure out how, how does he, and he... So I saw him two days later. He said, I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm good. I'm just trying to figure out how to get my whole family to come with me to heaven. And so he's confused, you know, and yeah. all that. But anyway, that's, yeah. uh, John. that's helpful. John. John. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. So we want John to be salty in a whole new way. Right, And the reason I wanted you to hear that is because I got to see John's face. He's, I don't know if he's my age, but he's certainly on the sunset season of life. And uh, it's gone down fast for me. I can see it. But just to see, let me say this to you. If you've never led somebody to Christ or been around somebody who's just moved out of darkness into light, you have no idea what eyes can really look like. And when you see a full-grown man look you in the eye with a, and, and said, this is what happened to me, and not ashamed of it, not sad for it, but transformed by it and grateful for it. And I'm looking at a guy who earlier that day was a paver of a whole different life and world, and I don't know the story that Michael knows, but he was a different guy this week because somebody engaged him, intentionally engaged him, and didn't do heart surgery with a scalpel. It was heart-to-heart sharing life and the good news that saves. Now listen, I don't know what you do for a living, but it's not better than that. And you can do that. You ought to be doing that. That's what Christians do. 
They have a heart for the broken. They know the Father's house needs to be full. The dinner is awaiting. You've been entrusted with the inviting. And you need to be engaging. And it's not always comfortable because salty people say salty things. Look, you should never get mad at a non-Christian for acting like one. You may not like it, but you ought not get mad because of it. I took you to Titus 3 last week. The priority in proximity is to win them, and you win them by pursuing, inviting, and rescuing them. That's the gospel story. And then Titus 3 was about the Cretan culture that was so debauched, and what the, the Titus, the Grecian Cretan church, I'll get it right, the Cretan church heard was be zealous for good deeds. Be gracious with your attitudes. Do not forget you were one of them. Be kind, be gracious, speak the truth in love, salt them with speech, and salt them with kindness. That's my advice, Paul said to Titus, to tell those people five times, be zealous for good deeds. This is profitable for everybody. So, potency and proximity. Win them. And I said this to someone today. Oh, it was Michael. I said, the other big idea is what? Ruin them. What do you mean, ruin them? I thought you wanted me to lead them to faith. Ruin them comes out of Proverbs chapter 21, verse 12. The righteous one considers the house of the wicked. A Christian is imputed with the righteousness of Christ. I'm a righteous one. I ought to consider the house of the wicked. It means to ponder, pay attention to, head up, eyes open, identify. I consider the house of the wicked. The wicked are God violators. They are people corruptors. They're cultural, culture influencers for, for negative. From their base of operations, you look at where they operate and you turn them to ruin. And we talked about that, identifying, strategizing, Michael referenced teaming for winning. You also need the team for ruining. I don't mean burn their house down. I mean engage their reality to handicap their capacity to promote their corrupting influence. Get in the game. Pray for them. Visit them. Change the dynamics and the factors involved in that situation and recruit teammates to help you engage them to the end that you can impact that wicked base of influence. That's what I mean by ruining them. If you want more about that, you can get it from last week's study. But it's tear it down spiritually, daily spiritual and practical actions. Look, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. You wrestle against powerful spiritual wickedness in high places. You don't shoot guns at that. You pray and seek the God of heaven to engage that resistance to the work of God in our world. Proximity. All right, I want to circle back to potency. Turn over to Joshua chapter 1. Potency matters. High concentration Seasoning matters. Life priorities to pursue to be high concentrate and powerfully potent salt. 
All right, so we're coming back to the theme of potency. That's where I've been meditating this last week, and you're getting the overflow of that. All right, we already talked about category number one, essential potency element, Christ over you. Prioritize and pick Christ over people, possessions, and even your own passions. Okay, that's potent. There's no potent, salty Christian in the right way who isn't Christocentric Christ over everything. Essential potency element number two. Here's a potency priority. Have unshakable confidence in God's presence with you. Let me tell you what this takes. Courage. Let me tell you what our culture doesn't have. Courage. The willingness to be in harm's way relationally requires courage. Man, I felt it yesterday at Vaughn's out in La Cunada. I walked in there to buy a high-protein bar. I'm still functioning under the assumption that I don't have to wear a mask. I walk in there, and I get to the, the uh, checkout line. Nobody said anything to me until I got to the checkout line. And I could tell the guy in front of me and the guy behind the register and the deal, they were hopeful that I would put a mask on. And I didn't have one. And I normally do that out of deference. I'm not, I'm not trying to be the offensive person. I have my convictions about masking and the impotence of that as a solution to the situation. And I can go off on Harry's understanding of studies and reasons and how they make those masks and where they come from. And that's just an opinion. I'm offering it, okay? <laughs> it's like trying to stop a mosquito with a chain link fence. It's just not going to happen. So I get to the register, and, uh, you know, he did. The guy said, uh, do you have a mask? I said, no, I'm sorry. I, I, I left it in the car. And he said, do you want one? I said, if you'd like me to have one. And so he was happy to give me one. And I, I, I felt the challenge of the pressure. And it was all about a mask and fitting in. All of a sudden, I felt like I was the guy not wanted at Vaughn's and La Cunada. And the guy who was checking out before me, he didn't like me. He sighed, rolled his eyes. Like, what are you, an idiot? Because of convictions I would have about the viability and necessity of masking. And all I'm using that as an illustration is, I don't know if ever in my life I've really felt that kind of pressure to conform like I do now. And I'm not predisposed to that. Frankly, what you think isn't a compelling reason for me to do anything. That's typical of me. But I feel it. And let me tell you what it takes in the gospel salty business. Courage. And let me tell you what that courage isn't. I'm an American and I got a gun on my hip. It's the recognition that Christ is with me. I want you to look at Joshua chapter 1 and just highlight something. You know the book of Joshua, at least I hope you do. Joshua is one of the best spots in the Bible to understand how to move forward and enjoy the felt and real promises of God. This is the people of Israel. They've wandered, wandered for 40 years. Moses is dead. The heroic leader. The iconic leader is dead, and the new guy is stepping up, Joshua. 
They're going to cross the River Jordan. They're going to go into a land of promise. As far as you can see, it's going to be your land. And they're about to enter into it. And the land of Canaan is the land of promise, and it is a symbol or a type, not of heaven, but of the abundant life. Okay, a lot of people say, I'm crossing Jordan's you know, shores, and I'm entering into heaven. Well, that might sing good. It's just not true. Canaan is not heaven because there are no giants and double-walled cities in heaven. There's no battles fought in heaven. But I'll tell you where battles are fought to enjoy the abundant promises of God. Canaan. And the abundant life is real, but there are challenges to overcome. And this is Joshua leading God's people to occupy, to overcome and occupy, to inhabit the land that God said, you know what? You're not going to have to build these cities. You don't have to plant these vineyards. I'm going to generously bless your life. You know what that is? That's being an abundantly blessed Christian. Grace dispensed upon grace. But it's not easy. And there are priorities. And so God's going to meet with the leader, Joshua, and he's going to say some things to him. Because he's been to that country. He's one of the two spies that represented, man, there's really good stuff there. There's giants. That's what the other 10 said. And there's double walled cities and it's a bad deal. He didn't focus on that. He focused on the promises and the abundance and the potential. So he knew what was there and he enjoyed what we need to enjoy as we journey into the spaces where God would call us to be agents who, or individuals or communities or peoples who will enjoy the blessings of heaven despite the adversaries and the obstacles. And there's principles here. Watch what he says in verse 5 to Joshua after he says, what I promised Moses, you're going to get to realize. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Now, here's the key thought I want to plant in your heart. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Watch verse 6. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 7. Hear it again, Joshua. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. God's wisdom and God's will revealed in his word. It shall not depart from your mouth, which means you have it in you. You're speaking it out loud. You shall meditate on it day and night. Key word meditate, day and night, key categories, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have what success If you want to inhabit this land of abundance, you're needing, this is the second thought, you need to be confident that I am with you. You need to be strong and courageous. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. 
for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I have a question for you, hermeneutically. Is Joshua the only guy who enjoys this benefit? Is he the only one who could say with confidence today, God's with me? You know that's not true. Hebrews chapter 13. You will never leave me nor forsake me. The Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am your helper. I will not desert you. This is 13, 5, 6, and 7. Do not be dismayed. What can men do to me? You know the Great Commission. While you're going, make disciples, baptizing, teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. Do you know how that begins? You know what it says in verse 18? All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Which means what I'm about to say has absolute lordship and sovereign authority attached to it. But you know what else it has? Which means it's not optional, making disciples. But I'll tell you what else it has attached to it. The guarantee of success. Because I have all authority. Not the guy in front of you, not the governor over you, not the city around you. I have authority. And what I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to, out of that authority, remember they were doubting and they were afraid, and I'm telling you, all authority, seen and unseen, I've got it. And do you know how that Great Commission ends? Low. Which is a way of saying, hey, get this. Hey, this is serious. Low is kind of a, a part of speech which is designed to say, hey, be assured. I am with you always until the very end of the age. Every day you live, every step you take, every person you talk to, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. Listen, you will not be salty in the ways that we want you to be. If you do not have absolute confidence that the king of everything is with you. And the commissioning call of your stewardship as an agent of impact and influence is grounded in the reality, I am not alone. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to tremble. I don't have to be dismayed. I have confidence that though there might be giants and double-walled cities, God says, I'm with you. Can you say amen to that? That's encouraging, isn't it? Because I'm prone to fear. I'm a human being. Bad things can happen. Now, I'm not advocating for militant mindsets and bad attitudes and take it or leave it. Look, sometimes you get in trouble because you are a problem in how you do what you do. I'm arguing for the fact that potent Christians are absolutely and unshakably confident that they're not alone when they do what the Master has called them to do as the salt of the earth, the promoter of righteousness, and the preserver of righteousness. And when you have to speak the truth, You speak it in love, but you speak it with courage. You speak it boldly, but you speak it graciously. You're not mad. 
because you were one of them. But you're confident because he's with you. Can you say amen to that? Confidence. Absolute confidence is the second criteria for being a person who is potent, high concentrate, and impactfully influential. I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? I'm grateful for that. And I need that anchor. Because I have to have conversations. And I have to go places that aren't altogether comfortable for me. And you know what? So do you. You're the salt of the earth. If you're tasteless, you don't have potency rooted in courage and a compelling conviction, you're not in the game. And that matters. All right. 1030, arrive quickly. I want you to get front row seats at Grace Community Church. So here, can I give you an assignment? Because um, I've got to cover some ground next time. There we go, a little song to go with it. So it's a happy assignment. So here's your assignment, okay? Because the third feature is the other thing the Lord said to Joshua. This book of the law needs to be in you. Listen to me, and it needs to be lived out by you. And if it's going to be in you and lived out by you, you need to meditate on it day and night. And if you know me, you know one of Harry's hobby horses is meditation is not memorization. Meditation is the chewing on something you've memorized and the applying of it that this book of the law you shall observe to do all that is written in it. Okay? So this is what I want you to do. This is your assignment. I want you to look at Psalm 1, and I want you to look at Job 28. Psalm 1 guarantees you some things if you're a day and night meditator. You're going to be like something, and everything you do, you'll be successful at, including salting the earth. Job 28 is where we're going to meditate out of. Because not only does the Word of God need to be in you, lived out by you. But God's wisdom in living as salt in the world today needs to be governed by the wisdom flowing from you. All right? Psalm 1, Job 28. How many of you have read Job lately? So, good. Oh, refresh your heart. Yeah, you don't get credit for listening. You got to read it. No. I'm teasing. Maybe they do that over across the hall, but not here. <laughs> I'm salty myself. (laughs) Sorry. All right, let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for the fellowship of God's people. Thank you for Cornerstone. Thank you for the family we share, the grace we've received. Thank you for John. Thank you for the, the tile layer. Thank you for amazing grace. Thank you for Michael and the teammates who prayed and invested. Lord, we we can be powerful. And we want to be, not for self-elevation, but so that God is glorified and people are blessed. Help us to be promoters and preservers of righteousness because we are who you say we are. And Lord, I ask today that we will travel this week 
with heads up, eyes open, to win them or to ruin them. Lord, to be confident that you're with us and to be compelling in our Christianity because you are so evident in our life, our words and our attitudes, that somebody is going to see who God is and what God can do. Lord, grant us that grace, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.